0: Tonight we are considering the topic, the fear of man. Um, And so the best thing to do up front is to define it. I I think that it's possible that no trap is larger today than the fear of man. However, it's important to define this term. I've, I've come to realize in speaking with people during different seasons that sometimes you use a phrase that the scriptures use and they, they may not be familiar with it in, in that vernacular. Sometimes I, I come across this often when you say the word steward. You tell someone, uh, I want to be a good steward of my time or a good steward of my resources. And it turns out that that phrase isn't quite as commonly used outside of uh, churchianity. Um, so there are different uh, phrases like that. But the fear of man is one of them. We don't use it much. Often our society uses other phrases to speak of the fear of man or of what comes from the fear of man. Here are a few. Social anxiety. People say, I I have anxiety, but I have a particular kind of anxiety. It's social anxiety. I get anxious when I get around other people. Uh, Peer pressure is a word that's used often. Or a fear of rejection. Low self-esteem sometimes is connected to this idea. Being a people pleaser. Now, this is one that I battle. It's a particular battle if you're a pastor because you have people. You want to you keep everybody happy. But then on the backside of that, you have to please God. And sometimes what pleases God doesn't make people happy. All right, It's kind of a difficult little tension there. Codependency, that's a word that became popular 20, 30 years ago. Uh, there's a, there was a book called Codependent No More that kind of uh, took the, the country by storm. Favoritism, the Bible speaks about the fear of man leading to favoritism. We see that in James chapter 2. We're going to be uh, talking about that tonight. Or vanity um, is sometimes connected to the fear of man. But here's a good working definition I think is faithful to the Scriptures. A good working definition of the fear of man is this. Esteeming the opinions or judgments of other people higher than we esteem how God views us. So, esteeming the judgments or the opinions of people, of other people, more highly than we esteem how God views us and what He has said about us. We look more to man than we do to God. The fear of God, on the backside of this, the fear of God is how we demonstrate that we have been given a new master to please. If we fear man, man has become our master. But if we fear God, that's how we show that we really do consider that He's our Lord. We fear God more than we fear man. And it's amazing how many times these two things end up being in conflict with one another. Fearing God and fearing man. So where do we see this in the Bible? Here are a few questions. The first question is, where do we see it in the Bible? This is not a complete list, but these are the ones that came to mind most readily as I was preparing this, the first one comes in Proverbs 29:25, where the actual phrase is used. And it says this, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. You think about it, what a snare is. I just get this picture in my mind of somebody's foot being caught. And you can't get free. You can still kind of move and you're still there. You can yell out, but you can't really go anywhere because you're caught, you're trapped, you're painted into a corner. Fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. This is an interesting way to, to, to look at things. First of all, because fear of man is contrasted with trusting in the Lord. It's almost as if the proverb is saying... If you fear man, it's because you're not trusting in the Lord fully enough. Those two things are on opposite ends of, of the spectrum, on opposite ends of, of the reality. It's also interesting because it says that trusting in the Lord is what keeps you safe. We have to understand what is meant by safety. Because, friends, there are believers around the world right now, and even today who have died because they feared God more than they feared man. You come to this passage, you come to this proverb, and it says that whoever trusts in the Lord, whoever fears God will be kept safe. Well, well, how can you say that? How can you say they can be kept safe if actually trusting God and following Him and not forsaking His name has led to someone's death? It's because the way that God defines safety is different from how we are tempted to define safety. Remember that passage in the Gospels where it says, do not fear the one who can kill the body and then has nothing more that he can do, but fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. In other words, no matter what happens to us, all of us, friends, are marching toward eternity. One day, we will all leave these bodies. And the ultimate safety... Is found in what happens after that. So we have to define safety the way that God defines safety. If Daniel had defined safety the way that we're tempted to, he wouldn't have ever allowed himself to be thrown into the lions then. Daniel, why you got to go out on top of the roof to pray? You know, the king told you you can pray, but you got to pray inside. Why you got to be going out on the roof to pray? He says, I'm going to pray to my God and I don't care who knows about it. Daniel, why don't you just eat the king's meat? Why don't you just do what he says to do? He said, well, I can't sin against God. Daniel, why don't you just bow down to to the the God that Nebuchadnezzar has set up? Why don't you just bow down? You just cross your fingers behind your back. He, you don't have to really mean it. You just bow down. You just bow down to the idol. We know he's not it. You, you just You just kind of go along to get along. He says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I have to fear God. More than I fear men. Okay, we're going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And God gives us a picture of what it means to be protected by God. And remember what Daniel said. Even if you throw me in there and I die, it doesn't matter. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Because he knew that he's safe with God. No matter what you do to this body. No matter what you do to me in this life. I'm still safe with God. Where else do we see it in the Bible? James chapter 2. Fear of um, fear of man shows up in a desire to play favorites. Here's another one that's very difficult um, if you are in ministry. Okay? I'm just speaking because this is what I know about. I'm sure it's difficult in in your lives and your occupations as well. Someone comes in. Well, let me just read the passage. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith. In our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes comes in also, and if you pay attention to the one who wears a fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's the problem after all, right? It's not so much the action, it's the heart behind it. Have you not made distinctions and become judges with evil thoughts? So if God looks at humans and says, image-bearer, 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 but we look at people and say, image-bearer with a lot of money, image-bearer with not so much, image-bearer with a lot of influence, Image bearer with not so much, have we not made distinctions and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Here, the fear of man leads us, uh, I'm sorry, here, the fear of man leads us to favor some people over others. It causes us to befriend those who can do something for us. I need to check on something really quick because mm, that's what I was afraid of. I got a message that I'll you I'm going to try it again here. Are you going to start over? Are <laughs> you Raise your hand Okay, it says that we're back live again. If it happens again, for those of you who are at home, I'm sorry, you're on your own. (laughs) Um, Getting back to this point, the fear of man leads us many times to favor some people over others. It causes us to befriend those who can do something for us. One thing that I, I had this idea, I, I'm always having these ideas of, of how how can we as a church love people who can never do anything back for us in, in return. Um, I just thought that, that maybe, I, we'll kick this idea around maybe, and I don't know if right now is the best time to do it or not, but I would just love for us to go out to you know, the, the, the dump over here, the little trash compactor on Tuesdays or Saturdays or whatever. And when people come up and it's cold weather, we just say, hey, we'll get your trash out of your car for you and we'll throw it away for you. You don't have to touch it. You don't have to handle it. We're just here. You know, you, you may you may never be able to do anything for us. We just want to love you through some kind of simple act of service. Um, and, and that's basically what favoritism leads us to not do. Favoritism leads us to to favor those who can do something for us. Um, But friends, we may have entertained angels unaware. Any act that we do for the least of these is done as unto the Lord, the Bible tells us. Mark 15 says this, And they cried out again, Crucify Him! And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify Him! So Pilate... Notice this, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So for Pilate, even in the perhaps the, the darkest moment of human history when the very son of God was killed, the desire to please or appease the crowd caused him to sin. He worshipped his standing in the eyes of others so much that he was willing to quite literally betray God. Friends, fear of man fear of man will lead to it to, to be a snare. It will turn out to be a snare. So we have to be uh, giving ourselves to the fear of God instead. A second question that I have put forth here is, where do we see this in the culture? Where do we see the fear of man in the culture? Well... Social media has uh, has magnified this perhaps tenfold, and that might be a conservative estimate. I've got a quote here from a man named Rick Thomas. He's a biblical counselor, and I'm paraphrasing him because it's been a long time since I heard the quote, but I wanted to give him credit. He has said something like this, The desire to be seen and noticed is lust in reverse. You know what lust is? is when you desire to see or notice something that you ought not to. Well, the desire to be seen or to be noticed is lust in reverse, he says. That's what social media amplifies. It says, I want to put myself out there so that I can be seen, so that I can be noticed, so that people can give me praise, so that I can increase my standing in the eyes of people living for the fear of man. Instead of the fear of God. So this preoccupation with self is amazing. Because all the solutions right now that are put forth are self-this, self-care, self self-esteem, self-worth. All of these self-words are being put forth. But it turns out that a preoccupation with self has actually increased depression and anxiety and self-harm. There's a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's been written by two uh, sociologist Jonathan Haidt and Gregory Lukianoff. I read it a couple of years ago. It's brought much of this to light. Of course, they're just simply condensing the research. But basically, the the relationship between screen time and depression rates, which is which is which is to say a relationship between time on social media. They're studying young people, students, youth between you know the ages of. Whenever you get a smartphone and whatever you become an adult, there's there's like this one-to-one correlation between more screen time, more social media time, and higher depression. The more we feed the beast of self, the more this beast seems to want to eat us. And this brain chemistry—I'm not a—I'm not a neuroscientist, but brain chemistry. The social media likes, you know, this desire to get likes and to check your social media and see how many likes are coming in, how many good comments are coming in. It's been um, you know basically, this dopamine dumps into your system every time and so you want more and you become resistant to it and next thing you know you're you're depressed because you can never get you can never get those chemicals back up to the level that you have them at there's also been a societal shift in thinking there's a book coming out um, i haven't told Whitney this but i 've already ordered the book i 'm not supposed to'm not supposed to be ordering any books <laughs> But I ordered this one because it's been—it's been uh, called—it's a book by Carl Truman. It's called *The Rise of the Modern Self*. Uh, It's been hailed as perhaps the most consequential book written by an evangelical in the last number of years. Um, It's talking about how are we thinking of ourselves these days. I want to read to you from Ed Welch. He, He wrote a book called *When People Are Big and God Is Small*. It's a book about the fear of man. When people are big and God is small. It's an interesting title. Uh, But um, he says this. He's a, by the way, I've got a couple of his things. He's a biblical counselor. He has a PhD in neuropsychology. Um, He says this. Significant cultural changes started in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Before this, people believed that there was a preordained divine structure to the world. Everyone and everything had its place. If you were born into a certain class, family, or trade, or your life was mapped out for you. I'm an Englishman. I'm a member of St. Anne's Parish. I'm a farmer. I'm the second son of Charles. Such was your identity. There was no need for vocational and religious decisions. They had already been made for you. There were a few identity crises, and everyone knew who and what they were supposed to be. Consequently, problems with self-esteem rarely surfaced. This is not to say that the culture didn't have other problems, simply that questions about identity and personhood were were thought of differently. The rise of a middle class changed much of that thinking, however. Life roles were no longer set in stone. New radical thoughts about one's life and identity, the possibilities that had previously gone unexplored, arose when the middle class flexed its muscles in the French Revolution of 1789. 1789. This event was a political marker for something much deeper that was taking place. With the blurring of distinctions between father and son, peasant and nobleman, and without a clear biblical thinking shaping the new social structure, a new worldview arose that placed much more value on individual growth, personal identity, and the immense possibilities of the person without linking it to a submission to divine authority. In other words, one of the most Frightening things for folks is to be told you can be anything you want to be. And then what happens when you're 35 and you're not a rocket scientist? Well, I guess I must have failed. I guess I'm no good. I, I was born in America. I was told that I could be whatever I want to be. And I'm, I'm not the president. Is something wrong with me? And we, we, we begin to wonder... Have I failed? Have I gone wrong? Well, um, basically, uh, Welch concludes this way. The supreme interest has become the self. Not God, not you, but me. There's a reason why Apple has had so much success with naming everything the I-something. It appeals directly to, to us. The iPhone, the iPad. I, I, I. As these assumptions have gained more acceptance, there has been an unprecedented increase in depression and an astonishing rise in the number of people who confess to rage against God. There is a grassroots cry from people who are demanding both answers and rights from God, and then, perhaps in the zenith of self exaltation, some clergy and counselors actually encourage such angry people to forgive God. The very interesting words um, from that book I would encourage you to to take that book up and read. It's very uh, very good, the whole thing. But there's a social media is on the rise and a different way of thinking about ourselves. We are the masters of our own destiny. We're the captains of our souls. We're in charge, and, and we are the masters of our own destiny. Here's the third question I'm putting before us. Why is the fear of man so bad? Well, the fear of man is a trap because it ultimately dethrones God from your life. It elevates people to the place where only God should exist. If you fear man instead of fearing God, you've placed other people and their opinions on the throne. That's, who, that's the altar that you have come to worship at now instead of the altar of God, Yahweh, the one true and living God. The fear of man is the opposite of the fear of God. Jeremiah 17 says this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water. You're hearing echoes of Psalm chapter 1. Bless, you know, uh, walk not in the counsel of the wicked and uh, or sit in the seat of scoffers. He is like a a tree planted in water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. Fourth question is this. How do we fight the fear of man, I missed a quote there, the little B superscript. I missed the A superscript too, but I'm just going to uh, trust you to go back and read that um, so that I don't go too long here. But B, way down at the bottom, uh, uh, Ed Welch says this. What is the result of this people idolatry? As in all idolatry, the idol we choose to worship soon owns us. The object we fear overcomes us. Although insignificant in itself, the idol becomes huge and it rules us. It tells us how to think, what to feel, how to act. It tells us what to wear, and it tells us to laugh at the dirty joke, and it tells us to be frightened to death that we might have to get up in front of a group and say something. The whole strategy backfires. We never expect that using people to meet our needs leaves us enslaved to them. Fearing man is a snare. The alternative, though, is to fear God. How do we fight the fear of man? How do we do it, though? First thing to do, and this is just a pattern of repentance that we, that we should go through with, with everything. We recognize it as a serious gospel issue. 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 5, says this. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So the idea that we are supposed to fear man and we're supposed to live for the opinions of other people, that's like this little anti-gospel, little g-gospel. It's like a false gospel that crops up in our heart and it tries to persuade us not to live to please God, but to live to please people. So what do we have to do? We have to destroy that argument. We take that thought captive. We say, Lord, I've entertained this idea. Forgive me for thinking this. Help me to root out these ideas from my mind. It's a gospel issue. Secondly, we replace it with a bigger vision of God. That's why I love the title of Ed Welch's book that I've showed you, When People Are Big and God Is Small. So if our God is weak, if He's small, if He's distant... If our God is uncaring and He mostly revolves around us and our desires, this kind of small God will never draw our worship. Does that make sense? If God is just simply here to please us, that's not the kind of God that will ever cause us to worship. I want to read uh, John Owens from his his death, the death of death and the death of Christ uh, in 1950 something. Um, J.I. Packer, who just this year went on to be with the Lord. Um, he, wrote a, he wrote just a foundational book called Knowing God. Um, I would encourage you to read it. Um, J.I. Packer wrote the foreword to, to a, a reprinting of this book back in the 1950s. And he says this, There is no doubt that evangelicalism today is in a state of perplexity and unsettlement in such matters as the practice of evangelism, the teaching of holiness, the building up of, the local, of local church life, the pastors dealing with souls, and the exercise of discipline. There is evidence of widespread dissatisfaction with things as they are and of equally widespread uncertainty as to the road ahead. This is a complex uh, phenomenon to which many factors have contributed. But if we get to the root of the matter, we shall find that these, that these problems are all ultimately due to our having lost our grip on the biblical gospel. Without realizing it, we have, during the past century, bartered that gospel for a substitute product, which, though it looks similar enough in points of detail, is as a a whole a decidedly different thing. Hence our troubles. For the substitute product does not answer the ends for which the authentic gospel has in past days proved itself so mighty. The new gospel conspicuously fails to produce a deep reverence, deep repentance, deep humility, a spirit of worship, a concern for the church. Why? We would suggest that the reason lies in its own character and content. It fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts because this is not primarily what it is trying to do. One way of stating the difference between it and the old gospel is to say that the new gospel is too exclusively concerned to be helpful to man, to bring peace, comfort, happiness, satisfaction, and too little concern to glorify God. The old gospel was helpful, of course, more so indeed than is the new, but only incidentally, for its first concern was always to give glory to God. It was always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment, a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good, both in nature and in grace. Its center of reference was unambiguously God, But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. This is just to say that the old gospel was religious in a way that the new gospel is not. Whereas the chief aim of the old was to teach men to worship God, the concern of the new seems to be limited to making him feel better. The subject of the old gospel was God and his ways with men. The subject of the new is man and the help God gives him. There is a world of difference. The whole perspective an emphasis of gospel preaching has changed. Our tendency in the past 50 to 100 years to, to bring God down to our level, to tame Him, to domesticate Him, to make Him totally explainable, to conceive of Him as here to do our bidding and wait on us in quiet weakness to join His team. But, but friends, God is God, and we have to have a big God. We have to have a big gospel if we're going to have a God worth worshiping. If we think small thoughts of God, our worship of Him will be small. When our worship of God is small, worship of something else will always fill that gap. And it's usually self. If we have a small God, we'll have a big self. Here's the third... Uh, strategy to ha- how we fight the fear of man. First, we, we recognize it as a gospel issue. Secondly, we replace it with a big vision of God, a bigger vision of God. Thirdly, we remember eternity. We remember what, what the words of Luke 12, uh, 4 through 5 say. I tell you, my friends, as we mentioned earlier, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Who holds the the ultimate keys? If we have a vision in our mind of who holds the ultimate keys, and we're able to worship him, we won't be tempted quite as much to worship those who don't hold the eternal keys. Friends, our God is the God of eternity. While men can do things to us here and now, only God has the keys to eternity. So we worship Him. We honor Him. We fear Him instead of fearing man. And then, fourthly, we repeat repentance. There's a little pattern of repentance here. We we thank God for the ability to recognize our failure. Says this in Second Corinthians seven. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So we I might see myself, I might see myself praying something like this to God. The reason I might see myself doing it is because I've done it, like today. Lord, forgive me for being so enslaved to the opinions of other people. Because I know that whenever I do that, I'm not focused on your opinion and your desires. Lord, would you forgive me? Confess these things to him. 1 John 1 9. Confess it to Him continually, as often as it crops up. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, it tells us in 1 John 1.9. I would also say find some accountability. James 5.16 says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. I think the reason that James instructs us to confess our sins to one another is because when we do that, It is the exact opposite of fearing man. You think about it. If you fear man, you're not going to want to tell him about your struggles. If you fear people, you're not going to want to tell them about your failures. So how do you fight against it? You run toward that. You go to your brother and say, I'm really struggling with this. Would you pray for me? I've sinned in this way. I'm caught in this pattern. Would you pray for me? Would you help me? Would you check in on me? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then lastly, just ask for grace to change. Believing in God's promise to do so. Philippians 1.6 says, He will finish the work He started in you. That's a promise. We get to hang on to that promise. And then 2 Corinthians 3.18. He's taking us where, to, from where we are to where we need to be from one degree of glory to another. He's promised it. He will do it. So ask Him for grace to change. Friends, I would encourage you to read these endnotes. Um, there's always a danger. There's always a danger of pulling quotes out of a book uh, without the context. So I would just encourage you to read the book. When people are big and God is small. So if you don't like the quote, I'm just going to tell you to read the book. And then if you don't like the book, I'm going to say, well, sorry. Maybe next time. Um, Friends, are there any, any thoughts that you've had uh, from this? Any observations or any questions you might think uh, would be helpful to ask about the fear of man? I hope it's been helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you. That's a good word. Yeah. Many times the the fear of being a burden to somebody else keeps us from allowing others to bear our burdens, as it says, bear bear one another's burdens in the New Testament. Anything else, friends, observations, questions? Why don't I pray for us? Let's pray. God, we uh, gather here tonight because we want to fear you. Uh, We want to hold you in high esteem. We want to care about your opinion more than the opinions of people. And Lord, I pray that you would equip us to be a church that is God-fearing, that has a big picture of a big God who has a big gospel, who's in control. Lord, we need that kind of big God in these days. We need a God who's in control. And Father, if you are not, it's not even worth praying to you. But Lord, we do believe that you are powerful. We believe that you're able. We believe that you're good. And we believe even in these strange days that we're having to navigate, that you have a grander purpose. So we throw ourselves onto your mercy. We give ourselves to you tonight. We ask you, God, wherever it crops up in our hearts, wherever the fear of man crops up, root it out, pull it up, and replace it with a deep and abiding fear of God. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.